it feels terribly insecure because, you know, I've got to deliver a book a year and it's got to be good. And I have no clue, no idea. It feels like the way I feel when I'm doing it, it's like I'm a movie stuntman and I just jumped off a high building. And I'm hoping <laughs> like hell that the stage crew gets the airbag in position just in time. Hey, hey, can you believe it's holiday time again? What a year of incredible guests sharing the very best of their writerly wisdom with us. I'm Linda Sievertson, and this is the Beautiful Writers Podcast, and that was Lee Child, author of the Jack Reacher series. With 23 bestsellers, including the new one, Past Tense, now a number one New York Times bestseller, the books continue to live up to their Forbes magazine label as the strongest brand in publishing. With over 100 million books in print, in 49 languages and over a billion dollars in sales, the author and his protagonist, Jack Reacher, show no signs of slowing down. Jack is a former military policeman who somehow keeps inadvertently ridding the world of evil. Our guest co-host today is our mutual friend, the uber-talented Tom Bergeron, who you know as the host of Dancing with the Stars and America's Funniest Home Videos. He rids the world of negativity in another way. I called Tom and I said, hey, you want to guest co-host this with me? And when he said yes, I asked Tom which author he most admires. Tom chose his friend Lee, and here we are. Lee is a native Brit who has long called New York home. And I thought that bringing these two on together would be a really strong combination, not only because of their mutual admiration, but because they're both at the top of their game. Very different games, right? We've got Lee, who's a rock star to his millions of fans, having created the quiet, distant, brooding Reacher who does not mess around. And on the other hand, we've got Tom, whose millions of fans love him precisely because he does mess around, cracking jokes on the fly and making us laugh on shows beloved the world over. In fact, with his hosting duties for dancing and funniest videos, and Hollywood Squares. Tom has been an integral part of three of the most popular TV shows of all time. Unlike Jack or Lee in his youth, Tom is a lover and not a fighter. But all three men make us feel safe. Like when they're around, we can take ourselves more lightly and breathe a little easier. I knew bringing them on together would be so much fun. And what I think is really, really fun is that you, our dear listeners, keep showing up and allowing me to continue to matchmake and do what I love most, which is to listen and learn. Welcome. How do you guys know each other? I think it started through Twitter, didn't it, Lee? Yeah, Tom twittered something and we liked it and got in touch and uh, it sort of took off from there. Wait, now who tweeted who? Well, I think if memory serves, one of the Reacher books was actually a two-parter, correct? It was like a few years ago. I remember being in England and reading one of the books, but it ended in a bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah, and that was 61 Hours, where he looks one. like he's dead in the end, and then six months later, the next book came out, and he's not dead. <laughs> yes, so, sure. yeah, you were uh, concerned. Uh, I was really happy about that. I wanted people to be concerned. <laughs> So, Tom, you tweeted a global concern with an at Lee Child? 
Yeah, and I got a lovely response, and it sort of picked up from there. So uh, the power of Twitter for good, as opposed to the exactly. more uh, creepy ways it's been used lately. <laughs> exactly. It's the power of dancing with the stars. Everybody that works for me is crazy about that show, so they were going <laughs> to do anything to, uh, <laughs> to get a visit. Oh, that's right? great. Can I ask, because as we're talking right now, if I'm remembering your calendar correctly, Lee, you're in the midst of writing a book now, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. I am. It's about one third done, maybe a little more than that, maybe 40%. Uh huh. And when's your delivery date? Technically not till June, but I try and deliver in March or April just to get it out of the way. Do you, yeah. Do you have a title? Blue Moon. Blue Moon. Oh, this is a scoop, I think. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Now he's on his way to San Diego, but I'm guessing he's going to get lost along the way again <laughs> or redirected. <laughs> Yeah, he never makes it anyway. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm so in love with the new one. I was up night after night. And the problem was I'm listening to you on audio. I love, love reading a book and then listening to it on audio. So I was in the audio portion, but then I would fall asleep because I'd be listening to it in bed, fall asleep and wake up and go, damn it, where am I? And then I have to go, then I have to go back to the table of contents. And, you know, it takes a few minutes to find your spot when you fall asleep. Anyway. And you've Please. had all that while you're asleep, you know, you're, it's probably programming your brain. <laughs> well, I think what I go about my business, whenever I'm dealing with one of your books or one of Dean Koontz's books, because he's a favorite author of mine as well, whenever I'm in one of those books, I'm always looking at the world really suspiciously, and I, yeah, I don't should. trust anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's been one of the really, really interesting things about the series, that it has run for 23 books now, and in the beginning... People were skeptical about, you know, would the government do something bad? Would this sure. bad thing happen? Would, would that bad thing happen? They were kind of, oh, that wouldn't happen. And now they're all on board with it. They know bad things are happening. Yeah, now we Lindy, know you, you said something when you fall asleep, you wake up and go, where am I? And it made me think, Lee, as you're writing the book, because I know you famously don't use outlines or anything, do you ever sit down after a previous day's writing and go, okay, where am I? <laughs> Yeah, kind of. I mean, to be honest with you, I started the book, did two months on it, and then I went on tour to promote the current book, Past oh, Tense. Okay. And I got back about a month overall it was, and I thought, okay, I've got to get back to writing the new book now. And I could not remember the name of the <laughs> woman in it. <laughs> it was that bad. <laughs> okay, so this makes me wonder how you keep things straight. So I love Scrivener, the program. Uh -huh. where I can keep plot lines and characters and everything in order. Do you use anything specific, or are you a Word doc guy? I just use Word. I'm so untechnical, and really what I would like to use is Write. It was the first word processor that I ever had, and it came free with the original Windows, and it was totally simple, and there was nothing to it, and I really like that, because you don't need much, really. And the Scrivener type of approach I don't use. I just rely on hopefully remembering, but sometimes I don't. <laughs> and when you say, how do I keep it straight, that presupposes that it is straight. A lot of mistakes in there. <laughs> how much rewriting do you do? Very little, almost none at all. I have one kind of nervous habit, which is that I, you know, these books have got to be pacey and they've got to be fast. So you get the feeling when you're writing them that you are burning through stuff at such a pace that the book is going to be way too short. So there's usually two paragraphs in there that are just like 
rubbish, you know, just rambling. <laughs> Two paragraphs, that's it. <laughs> but I leave them in. Uh, for the time being, I leave them in because I'm thinking, no, I can't make this book even shorter. And so <laughs> then I get to the end and it's perfectly long enough, everything is fine. And so I go back and I take out those two baggy paragraphs. But that's the only rewriting I do. It's a peculiar thing for me. I mean, I promise you, I'm a completely normal, sane person, really. Yeah. But I, when I'm doing it, I feel like this is happening. You know, this is taking place. And so you can't go back and change that. It's like life itself. If something happens, we don't necessarily love it, but it happened, and we can't change that afterward. Yeah. And kind of that's how I feel about the story. I love how you said that the reason you don't use an outline, we've talked with Stephen Pressfield several times, and he uses the full scat method where you put the entire outline of your book on one line sheet of paper. And there's different theories. I've never been good at that. Unless if I'm ghostwriting a book for a business person, I'm really good at it because I have to deliver in eight weeks and you just outline it, boom, boom, boom. It's somebody else's material. It's pretty easy to visualize. But on my own stuff, I'm notorious for taking years and years and years to write a book because I'm just going off in a million different rabbit holes. So I've done both extremes. But with you, I've heard you talk about the fact that you don't want to be writing it before you're writing it. You don't want to live it before you're living it. So you just start and just go. Does it feel like a download? Does it feel like it's already written somewhere? Is this a spiritual thing or is this purely mechanical? Just go. Well, you're right. I mean, that's really well expressed. You know, I would have lived it before I'd lived it because I just lived for the story. And if I knew what was going to happen, then I'm done with that. I want the next story. And sitting there for six months typing it out, I would be bored. And I think that would show through. And I also feel like I've learned to love the rabbit holes. You know, if you write in an uncontrolled manner, then you just randomly come up with great stuff. And I feel if it was outlined, you would have to ignore that. And mm -hmm. you would feel like you were wearing a straight jacket, I think. I have to say, one of my other Twitter buddies has uh, become uh, Andy Martin, who did that wonderful book on you where he shadowed you oh, throughout right. the, uh, the writing of Make Me. And I think it's, the title is Reacher Said Nothing, appropriately enough. Was that something you regretted at any point, having somebody literally over your shoulder watching you write? I did at first. I mean, Andy is a very smart academic guy, but he's also incredibly disorganized. And so he got, <laughs> he got this idea like two days before I was due to start. Because as you know, I always start on September the 1st. Right? The anniversary he, of when you were yeah. fired, right? Yeah, it's a sentimental about. day for me. And so he emailed me like two days before, which gave me no time to really make a sensible decision about it. <laughs> so I said, yeah, you know, it was the 20th book, 20th anniversary. So I thought, let's do something different, maybe. And so I thought, yeah, okay, great. And so he showed up and I sort of regretted it at first, but I got used <laughs> to it. And it became an interesting year for me. And I'm glad that book is out there. Reacher said nothing, because it's like a diary for me. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom, what about you? Well, first of all, you write so much stuff. You write the most hilarious things. And you wrote a novel, which was, you didn't publish it. Oh, that was horrible. To, you gave yeah. it to John Ritter, your friend. And yes. so sadly, he wanted to make it into a TV movie and then died on the side yeah. of his show. And then you write this great memoir, I'm Hosting As Fast As I Can. 
which again, on audio, by the end of it, I was so in love with your stories and oh, your thanks. voices and the music, the way you used all the different vignettes. And the, I was so sad when it ended, but how do you edit? How do you write? Well, that's a book I wrote a long time ago, and it's currently holding up some of the finest windows in America. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, for me, it was just, I was writing a book about meditation, really as a TM meditator for years, and the anecdotes were sort of the way I lured you in to write about meditation and being present and being in the moment, which really, I think, boomerangs exactly back to what Lee's talking about, that it's almost a meditative state you're in when you're writing about Reacher, isn't it, Lee? It is, and it feels terribly insecure because, you know, I've got to deliver a book a year and it's got to be good. And I have no clue, no idea. It feels like the way I feel when I'm doing it, it's like I'm a movie stuntman and I just jumped off a high building. And I'm hoping <laughs> like hell that the stage crew gets the airbag in position just in time. <laughs> now, I want to do a little background. You were in television 18 years. There was a restructuring. You weren't real great with the unions. You had to go, which I wish we had more time because I'd love to hear that story. But so you're out of work. You're desperate. You're in a hurry, like you still are. You're banking everything on this first book, all the things most writing coaches tell their students not to do. And your dad is like, eh, your odds are 10,000 to one that you're going to have a hit. And he's probably right, right? But you hit. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, well, you know. To a certain extent, people misremember the chronology. The first book was solid. It did really well for a debut. But I remember how many they printed in America. They printed 18,000 only. And now I get like 18,000 shoplifted in Manhattan alone. And so it, it was small. And the second book was slightly bigger, and the third book was slightly bigger. It was a long sort of eight year process before. I became vaguely, even remotely, sort of well-known or a household name. It yeah. was a long process. Was and your dad that always right? that good with pep talks? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it sounds terrible, and he was a doer guy. I mean, he was very doer, but he was an accountant, basically. He was a rational numbers guy. Right, right. And I could not fault what he said. I mean, it was maybe not the polite moment to say it, yeah. but, you know, it was true, basically, and I'm deeply grateful that out of all those guys that started back then, I'm still here. You know, that's fantastic. There's one anecdote that I absolutely loved reading about you as the former owner of a Renault Lacar. Um, <laughs> yeah. Would you explain the connection between a Renault Lacar and Lee Child? I can indeed. And it was not me, actually, that owned it. I was on a train, my second visit to New York, I think it was. And we were staying with my wife's parents who lived in Westchester, just north of the city. And we'd been in to see a Broadway show and took the last train out, which is always crowded. And so we couldn't sit together. So I was sitting to some, some random guy who started talking to me and noticed that I had a foreign accent. And he said, apropos of absolutely nothing, he said, I've got a European car. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? What car have you got? And back then, Renault of France sold cars in the U.S. That's right. And what we in Europe, the little hatchback, the little compact yeah. uh, city car was called the Renault 5. But when they sold it here, 
they wanted to invest it with some kind of Parisian chic or something. And so, so they called it Le Car. And so I said to this guy, what have you got? But he mispronounced it. He said, I've got Lee Car. <laughs> <laughs> and so that one universal truth amongst writers' households is that there are constant word games. I mean, nothing is ever straight. Everything is a game with words. And so immediately, my wife and I started calling everything Lee. Lee this, Lee that. <laughs> and then a few years later, when our daughter was born, obviously she became Lee baby. And then uh, as she grew up a few years, she became Lee child. There you go. And so, <laughs> so when I needed a pen name, I, I, I remembered back to that. And I thought, yeah, that's a great name because... And this is a hard thing to say, but I know for a fact that Tom will understand it. You know, in the real world of show business, of course it is a joy. It is creative. It is an art. It is all of those good, wonderful things. But it's also a job. It's a yeah. business. You know, right. it's got to work. And so I was very aware that even though my real or my birth name is not complicated, it's not particularly memorable. It's not particularly easy to say or hear. And I wanted a name that was easy to hear and repeat because this is a word-of-mouth business. Um, and I also wanted a name that was a letter C because, especially back then, when everything was physical, we would be in a physical bookstore. You would oh, be browsing oh, from left, left to right. right? And you, people get bored and fatigued very early. So if you are early in the alphabet and C, seems to be the best letter of all. I mean, literally, you can get the statistics to prove it. C is a great initial. That's why nobody reads the works of Ray Zabrowski. <laughs> there you go. There you go, yeah. Oh, my God, so you're right next to Agatha Christie. Yeah, although that varies store by store, you know, whether they shelve you in genre or general fiction or whatever. Sure, but sure. I just wanted to be Top of the at the sweet, sweet spot. Yeah, you know, yeah. when eye level before people are getting weary. Oh, my gosh. Linda Sievertson, I'm really going to have to rethink this. Okay, so you're born Jim Grant. The release uh -huh. of your first book, you changed it to Lee Child. Now you're known for Jack Reacher. Do people get confused, and do you ever wake up with whiplash and think, like, who am I, where am I? I was in London, now I'm in, I'm in New York. What the hell? Well, I've used uh, other names before, and I find them very comforting in the sense that you insulate it a little bit. You have a little bit of distance. Yeah. The good things or the bad things, they're not quite happening to you. Exactly. <laughs> it's this other guy. So that you can have some perspective on it. And so I found out it's a pretty useful thing. People do subliminally confuse me with Jack Reacher all the I'm time sure. you know, in the back of their mind which is fantastic when it comes to contract negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> you come in as the hammer. Yeah, you know, I'm a really nice guy, but they think I'm going to kill them with a pipe cleaner if I don't get what I want. When you're walking the streets of Manhattan in the midst of writing a book, you've got to be thinking uh, as you pass people, okay, I could disarm that person, take them down by hitting them here, kicking them there. Do you go through, reach your head at all as you're living your own life? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, you know, the reach ahead comes from my real life. Sure, of course. Mainly as a little kid. You know, I grew up in a city that was rough and tough, and it was also a long time ago. Society was totally different, and 
emotionally, it was a very inarticulate society. Nobody could really express themselves in any way at all. So anything was resolved by fighting. It was just like breathing. It's what happened. And on top of that, my folks were very ambitious for us. You know, they wanted us to have what they did not have, a good education and do well and all those things. And when you're in a city like that, in a school like I was in, which that is like having a target on your back. You know, you're too big for your boots. You're above yourself. There is no worse sin in Britain than being above yourself. And so I was constantly fighting. And so all of that wariness, all of that assessment of the environment is absolutely instinctive. Wow. Now, you say that you wanted to kill your first boss. <laughs> and you have, you have eight <laughs> books since. So you said it was sort of like the whole board of directors. So I got through the whole board of directors. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> oh my, how about you, Tom? Ever want to kill one of your bosses? There was, you have a uh, different persona, Tom, in the world. No, uh, I, have to, I have to say there was one, I'm thinking of one network executive who sadly passed away, and my agent at the time what? said, are you going to go to the funeral? And I said, only to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so how he about, passed away before you could get him. How did yeah, that's him? right. I know. It was, he, I think it was a preemptive move on his part. Okay, so, okay, this brings up something for me with the two of you. I love bringing people on this show who share similar but different experiences. So, Lee, you've got this cult following of this character you've created, Jack Reacher, who the world over people call themselves Reacher creatures, and they're out in full force. And then, Tom, you've been in our living rooms making us laugh, lightening our load for decades. Thank you. So I have this double-pronged question. You're really different creatures. So we've got the Reacher. It's solemn. He's quiet. He kills people. <laughs> and then, Tom, we've got you. You're, like, lovable and chatty, and you're the jokester. So and, and just for the record, I'm taller than Tom Cruise. There you go. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can attest to that. <laughs> so can I. So Tom, where Reacher is towering and ugly, which I will never see Reacher is ugly, but whatever. That's what you say, Lee. Tom, you're petite and you're lovely, petite. but the end result is the same. You both have world domination. So there you go. I want to hear from you guys about this weird world of being famous and what that loyalty of your audience means to you and maybe what it's taught you about fame and life in general. Ready, go. You take it firstly. Well, I mean, I think that I'm going to be really interested about what Tom says about this, but the whole story for me is honestly need. I need the love and approval of an audience. I think it is, and I've met an awful lot of writers and an awful lot of performers of one kind or another, especially stand-up comedians, for instance, who feel the same way. They're looking for something they did not get in their upbringing, wow. some kind of level of approval or acceptance. And that's why I do it. I've always been in the business that has an audience, because if I'm pleasing an audience, there is no finer feeling for me. I just feel... <laughs> Great. Somebody has enjoyed something that I've done. It makes me feel really, really good. And that then makes me feel really good about them. I love my fans. I love my readers. I'll do anything for them because they're completing the circle for me. I'm a happy guy because they are happy. Wow. That's beautiful. 
What about you, Tom? Well, it's interesting. As Lee was answering that, I was thinking about the nature of what we each do. And for Lee to be starting on September 1st to write a book that then comes out subsequent year, so you have a delayed response to the immediate work while you have a continuing response to the body of work. And for me, I love, as I think you both know, live television. I love that instant reaction. The, yeah. If something occurs to me in the moment on the dancing show or wherever, and it gets, a, you know, have 700 people burst into laughter mm-hmm. because something just occurred to me and I said it, that is a bit of a rush. It really is. I think the split personality part for me is that I never watch what I do. I never, for all the years that Dancing <laughs> really? with the Stars has been on, I've only seen one episode of it. Uh, the America's Funniest Video Show, I maybe saw a handful over 15 years. I like the moment of doing it, and then I am often surprised when people recognize me because I have to remind myself, oh, that's right, I did it on television. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. In front of a fairly large audience, so I think he's talking about that. Yeah, like 38 million people. Yeah, well, the good old days, anyway, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, Lee, can you talk to us? I love what you say about what books are actually for and about how they give us what we can't have in our real life. Do you know where I'm going with that? Yeah, that's, and to me, that is the exact purpose of fiction, to give you what you don't get in your real life as an alternative. And so or as a consolation or an encouragement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the best example for me, getting away from my genre, would be like romantic fiction. Where I used to live in New York, I've moved now, but I used to live on a downtown block where there were two model agencies. So every time I got on the subway, I would be sitting across from some stunning woman. <laughs> and of course, I never talked to her. I never asked her to dinner. I never asked her to come down to the islands for a weekend with me or something. Of course, I didn't do that. But in a book, you can do that. And that's what people crave. The things that they can't do in real life, they can enjoy on the page. And in my genre of crime fiction, that is very satisfying to them because real life crime is never really fixed. You know, if your house is broken into... They're never going to find the guys. They're never going to get your stuff back. There's no closure. There's no satisfaction. It's all very frustrating. And people are sick of it. So they turn to a book that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A crime is committed. The guys are hunted down. The guys are caught and punished. That is so satisfying. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I think Reacher's moral clarity has become even more satisfying in recent years than it may have been initially. When you talk about a beginning, middle, and an end, in your mind, is there an end for Jack Reacher? That's a great question. And, and uh, you know, it's a very hard decision to make because in the wider showbiz context, you know, the entertainment business context, you can even see it in sports and so on. You do not want to be the guy that sticks around for a season too long. Right. You know? You don't want to end up embarrassing. You want to be remembered for some solid books earlier rather than two really lousy ones later. And so you've got to get off the stage and leave them wanting more. But when exactly is that time? You know, that's a very hard decision. And would you uh, do a Sherlock Holmes uh, send Reacher hurtling off a waterfall? Or or (laughs) would would he just sort of 
at the end of that last book, he'd go off, he'd do a quad chang cane and walk off into the distance, and we would be left to imagine what his next adventure is. Well, yeah, I mean, I used to think that as a, almost like a literary theory, you know, a mythic legendary character like Reacher needs a definitive end, a heroic end, where it would be a difficult book to plot because Reacher yeah. is a smart guy, but let's say he's forced into a situation at the end of the book where he's either got to give himself up or give the person he's protecting up. And obviously he's going to choose to give himself up. And so... I always had in mind the title would be Die Lonely. And the final scene would be Richard crawls into some filthy motel bathroom and bleeds to death on the Dude, floor. Dude, no! Well, yeah, well, you know, people react exactly like you just reacted. And it would be cruel. It would be yeah, so I'm not harmless. okay with it. I yeah. mean, in my fantasy, no. he has a child and he's off in the country swinging between two trees in a hammock. If he's in the bathroom... Bleeding to death, the last thing he does is pull out his toothbrush for one last brush. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, or jam it in the wound to staunch the bleeding. There you but go. <laughs> I, in the end, I just, it's too cruel to do that. So if it comes to it, I like what Tom just said. You know, he just, we leave the reader to imagine what comes yeah. next. Yay. Or, or maybe a, a softer ending where he's on his way to the bus depot and he stops and he says, you know what, maybe I'll stay here. And he adopts a dog and lives happily ever after. There you go. Ah, dog. That'll make me happy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tom, will you please lead our rapid-fire Q&A? Yeah, I love this. Linda just has a bunch of quick questions. Lee, don't even think about it. Just answer. All right. All right. All right. Power walk or power nap? Power nap. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Wine or vodka? Uh, Wine, I guess. When you're reading hard copy, soft copy, or ebook, I'd like a hardcover book, yeah. All right. In your heart, New York or London? Oh, New York. It is. Right. Uh, I'm one of hundreds and thousands of Brits here. Sting even wrote a song about us. Uh, <laughs> That's <I'm> true. <laughs> Finish this question. Readers love me most in which three countries? Per capita of the world, it is New Zealand is first, and then Bulgaria. (laughs) I think per capita after that, I don't know what comes, could be the U.S., could be the U.K., I don't know. But in terms of craziness, it's definitely New Zealand, yeah. There you go. All right, Mozart, Metallica, Mariah, or Mick, as in Jagger? That has got to be Jagger. There you yes, go. I was hoping. I love this one, Linda. My favorite way to watch a bad guy suffer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, being a writer, what just I'm thinking, does that mean what position am I in while I'm watching him, or is it the suffering <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I'm suffering? You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're I, a barker lounger at an execution, that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So I'll answer both ways. Laying on my sofa with a nice hot cup of coffee, watching him, I don't know, uh, drown, I think would be good. <laughs> you know, so, some barrel of water that has this steady drip, and he knows it's going to wow. take about Four hours, you know. That is frightening how detailed that was. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and hey, two more quickly. My favorite, my favorite genre to read is, uh, pro- you know, these days probably history. Okay. Yeah. And finally, if I could come back as any writer from history, it would be? 
it would be me. I mean, I just I did it. I <laughs> the luckiest <laughs> life. I'm real happy with that. I can't imagine swapping with anybody. Oh, that's beautiful. Best answer ever. Love that. We're all aspiring for that. Okay, so Tom, as a kid, what did you read? You know, it's interesting. I read like uh, Herman Hess or Jack Kerouac. I had Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie with me when I did a hitchhiking, plane hopping radio series across country. Right. That's the closest I came to being like Reacher, but without any of the intrigue or fisticuffs. <laughs> I basically hitchhiked on private planes and by the side of the road and did three reports a week for the radio station I was working for in New Hampshire. Oh, that's so Kerouac was your idol. Yeah, well, Steinbeck, Travels with Charlie, was with me the whole five weeks I did that. I had an image of him almost being alive in my backpack, if that makes sense. And then I felt that connected to him in the midst of doing my own trip. Oh, that's great. Lee, what did you read as a kid? I read all the normal kid stuff, you know. I'm not going to be one of these guys that says I was reading Dostoevsky when I was seven or anything. Uh, there was a British author called Enid Blyton, who allegedly was a real woman, but actually, I'm certain she must have been a sweatshop of about 50 people right yeah. in the way because she did so much. She had a series called Famous Five that was uh, a sort of adventure series, and she had a series called The Secret Seven, which was kind of mystery 101, you know, how to see a clue, how to put on a disguise, how to get out of a locked room, all that kind of stuff. Then I moved on to... A Scottish thriller writer called Alastair MacLean, who I really liked. So I'm a trashy genre reader all my life. I mean, I've read serious stuff, but the stuff I really enjoy is something with a bit of excitement and adventure in it. Mm -hmm. I should add, as an asterisk, in my younger years, too, it was all Hardy Boys and comic books. Oh, so yeah, that, that predated Kerouac and Steinbeck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a question about your go-tos. Liz Gilbert, she chews gum when she writes. Danielle Laporte loves chips. Nell Scavell loves a good cinnamon roll. I have pineapple and dried mango and green tea. Lee, really? Coffee and cigarettes? Are you serious, really? Yeah, totally serious and, <laughs> and scientific as well, which I was really, really happy about because <laughs> I've always worked in the creative businesses and I have always noticed, anecdotally, it slowly dawned on me over the years, I do my best work when I'm hungry, uh, when, oh. when I'm physically hungry to the point of being able to feel it, then I do my best work. And I thought that was just me. And then I happened to read a scientific paper that had some new research that said when we're hungry, the creativity center in our brain lights up because it's an evolutionary inheritance. You know, a million years ago when we were hungry, we better come up with a better plan to catch the next woolly mammoth. You know, we better really work on this. And we're trained to do it subliminally and atavistically in our brains. But if you're hungry, you become more creative. So it's like a, a, a survival instinct. Yeah, total survival. If I was sitting there eating, I would be happy. I wouldn't need to go and hunt something down. So, by, so that, I, I, by, by that logic, do you smoke cigarettes because you want to imperil your life so that that makes you even a better writer? <laughs> I just, uh, I've, I've, given, 
I've given up justifying it. I mean, it's a terrible habit, but I just love it. I love it, you know. See, I, I'm it's selfish. One of, my, one of my main enjoyments. I know, and I remember talking to Maggie, your wonderful uh, assistant, about this. I said, you know, I worry about Lee smoking, not so much for him, but for me. I, if he, he kills yeah. himself with cigarettes, yeah. no more books. Well, you know, it's not that far off from what you do, Tom. So you're a meditator. You've been meditating for decades. Well, if, you right? know, meditation, it's breathing. Well, the mortality rate among meditators <laughs> is much smaller than among cigarette <laughs> right? smokers. Right, no, but uh, what do you do no, when you... Tom, Tom, but, let's, let's be realistic. The mortality rate amongst meditators is 100%. Well, that's true. Good point. Yeah. All right, you got me there. <laughs> but, but, really, but really, you're going for the same thing because I'm not a smoker, but I watch them. And they're going for the deep breath, right? That's a lot of what smoking is, is you're finally breathing. It may be infested with all sorts of chemicals, but you're still breathing. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm going to use that. It's deep breathing. breathing exercises. And now I feel you have just given me, Lee, the most excited feeling I've ever had about my diet because people always make fun of me that I eat mostly fruit during the day. And people are like, you don't get enough protein. You don't get enough calories. What the hell are you doing? And now I realize. I'm always hungry because when you eat pineapple, you're hungry. Yeah, what? retitle this podcast, Rationalizing with Writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, the human body is incredibly adaptable. I remember doing a news story in Britain. They discovered this kid in Liverpool who was uh, 15 years old. And that he had sort of neglectful parents or indulgent parents, and he'd been a fussy eater as a kid. And therefore... Solid food from the six months through the age of 15, he had eaten nothing except jam sandwiches, <laughs> white bread, butter, strawberry jam. <laughs> he had eaten nothing but those in his entire life. And they found he was very slightly anemic, but other than that, he was fine. No. The human kidding. body is very adaptable. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, schedule. I'm sure a billion people have asked you this, and I'm just going to be a billion and one. Lee, what does your writing schedule look like? Well, I always start on the 1st of September, as you know. And my one firm belief in life is that nothing of value is ever achieved in the morning. And so I never write in the morning. I always start. Yeah. I get up usually pretty leisurely and I mess around in the morning drinking coffee and I maybe do a couple of emails or read the news and stuff like that. And then take a shower, get dressed, and it's usually around about, I don't know, one o'clock before I start. Hmm. And then do you write late? You know, I've learned that, obviously, I could. I can work, you know, we've all worked 12, 24 hours when we need to. But I find that there's a quality threshold that you kind of hit. There's some kind of fatigue in your mind or something, but after about five or six hours, you are just not 100% anymore. So I've learned to spot that point and so I do maybe six hours a day which is shamefully indulgent but long term it is the most efficient because you're not doing something that you're only going to have to change the next morning. Are you in the book though the other hours of the day I mean do you wake up in the middle of the night going okay that's the next line or pushing the story forward? Yeah exactly I mean Typically, I'll have done my six hours, and then I'll be doing something in the evening, you know, watching the baseball or relaxing or listening to music or something. And it's a really great clarifying situation, you know. It just becomes obvious, yeah, this is where it's got to go next. Or, no, that line should be changed because it wasn't quite clear or something. 
I love those thoughts that happen at 11 or midnight. It's something your subconscious just bubbles it up and it says, mm-hmm. no, do this. Now, how do you balance? You're both married long term. Tom, I love your wife, Lois, so much. You are such a family guy, Tom. My God, you are so devoted to your two daughters and your wife. that You put them ahead of everything. And you've always had a really busy work life. And also, Lee, you've been married for, what, 43 years? Yeah. Actually, we've been together 45 years in February. So, yeah, long term. And I didn't know at the time. To me, this was very early 1970s, where two weeks would have been a really long relationship. (laughs) And uh, I assumed, great, you know, here's a good couple of weeks, but it's now 45 years, yeah. And how do you balance the writing with the love? Because you got to give attention to women. We women require some attention. I've found that out, yeah, believe it or not. (laughs) And actually, it's a hard thing, and I would love to know exactly what Lois thinks about this too, which is that To a certain extent, you know, I don't want to be sort of pretentious about this. We belong to the world. You know, I belong to my readers to a certain extent. And I think that's an awkward situation for a spouse. You know, you're kind of sharing the person in certain ways, quite apart from the time commitments, you know, which are huge, the amount of stuff that you have to do. So it's a pretty difficult thing to manage, to be completely frank about it. Yeah. Well, Lois has told me, because I've asked Lois this question, Tom. Last time I saw her, I actually asked her this. And she said she has always loved missing you. So when you're on the East Coast and she's on the West Coast, I can't wait to see you. And she said, I think it's part of why we're so strong is because we always love coming back together. Yeah, I think so. I think I would venture, I probably would say the same thing about him and his wife. Lois and I are very strong individuals. We're perfectly comfortable on our own. We're just, and this is a bit of a cliche, I suppose, but it's true, we're better together. And uh, to the point of belonging to the public, I was thinking when Lee said that about my daughter, Jessica, who's now 30, but when she was a little kid, we were coming out of a restaurant outside of Boston where a number of people had come up and said hello because of a TV talk show I did in Boston in those years. And Jesse, who was probably four, goes, Daddy does everybody have to watch your show? And, and I said, honey, that's why we can afford to eat in a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, that's, and the, I think the lucky thing for Joan and me is we've been together 45 years, but it's like we've been together for five years, yes, nine yes. times. Yep. Because life changes, obviously. And I think where exactly. people run into trouble without, obviously there are some bitter divorces and so on and terrible mistakes and so on. But I think... Where people really run into trouble, your life changes a little bit, your partner's life changes a little bit, but they diverge. We've been very lucky that we've had these five-year segments where we both are kind of into what we're doing. Like, yeah, strong individuals. She doesn't depend on me for her kind of, uh, she doesn't live through me at all. She lives her own life and uh, stays very strong about it. Hey, uh, I'm looking at the clock, and I know we only have a few more minutes, and I have to address this, Lee. I was not bashful when we went out to dinner after you and Maggie came to Dancing with the Stars about how I felt about Tom Cruise as a creature. It was not a unique position that I shared with you. But what's the status of the character in a different venue, like streaming cable, something like that? That's where we're headed. Yay! It's been a uh, saga. 
let me say straight away that Cruz as a guy is a terrific guy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun and all that stuff that you read about him being weird, I, none of that is true in my experience. He's just a lovely guy and he's a great actor and he's remarkably ego free for a person in his position. I, mean, I loved him I've in the Reacher movies. Love him in the movies. He's just not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love him in the Impossible. <laughs> Yeah. Every scene was about how do we make the story advance here, not how do we make me look good. Right, was, right. He was terrific. But the readers never, ever, ever bought into the physicality. And I can sympathize with that because Richard's size and intimidating appearance is integral to his exactly. character. I mean, that's exactly. who he is. And ultimately, yeah, the readers just never, ever accepted it. And so... There was a clause in the contract that said after two movies, I have a veto whether we make any more. And the media landscape has changed to the point where if you're given the chance now, obviously you're going to go to streaming television for a thing like Reacher. So, yeah, I mean, the binge aspect is just great. Plus, the other thing that people probably don't take into account is that every day making a movie is a struggle about the damn racing. You know, is this acceptable at PG or is this going to make it R? And that is a huge, huge decision because the R audience is much smaller. So it's got to be PG. So every minute it's like, is this going to be all right? Is this going to be okay? And it's boring. It gets to you after a while. And that doesn't apply on streaming On HBO. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, not that we're going to make it gratuitously vile or obscene or anything, but we just want to relax about it. So it's going to go to one of the streaming platforms and it's going to be a new actor, hopefully, hopefully a complete unknown that brings no baggage, brings no stereotyping, looks exactly right. So everything is set up. I think all the deals are done. We're going to start the process, presumably after the holidays. Oh, wonderful. Congrats. Looking forward to that. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, I have one last question. Setbacks, letdowns, blocks. You see your goal on the horizon. It's just out of reach. This sounds sounds like a Reacher novel. (laughs) But in your life, I know you've had a really blessed career, but there are times where what you want is not happening. And so how do you best navigate? Because so many of our writer listeners are in the gap. Both of you, what's your best advice for navigating the gap? Well, you go first on this one, Tom. The short answer that comes to mind immediately is, and I hearken back to this all the time, be present, be in the now of your life. And then a piece of advice that my friend Carl Reiner gave me. He said, what piece of dirt do I stand on that nobody else stands on? And for the answer to that question for him gave birth to the Dick Van Dyke Show, which was largely based on his experience working with Sid Caesar on your show of shows. So that's that's my two-part answer. Over to you, Lee. Oh, I have two stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think be present. What well, In our business, we say keep showing up. Yeah. Uh, you know, do the best book you can every year. That's really all you can do. Just do your best every year. And I have two mottos. One is from growing up the way I did. I'm not afraid of stress. Stress is afraid of me. <laughs> I love it. The other thing that I say is I can't grow any more talent, but I can certainly outwork anybody else. Sweet, sweet. I have one last 
This is less of a question than a request, and obviously feel free to just knock it down. You were kind enough to tell us the title of the next Reacher book that you're working on now, Blue Moon. What's the first line? Uh, the, <laughs> the first line is, the city looks small on a map of America. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love your short sentences. <laughs> right? I know. I aspire. I just so aspire. All right, you guys, what a joy. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, this was a pleasure. Lee, next time I'm in uh, back home in Connecticut, I'd like to come into New York and take you and Maggie out to lunch. Give you a, a That would be great. I'll, I'll get you back before 1 o'clock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you got you. That's great. Thanks very much, guys. You uh, bet. Absolute pleasure. Take care. So my pleasure. Bye, Thanks. guys. Bye. Huge thanks to Lee for finding time on tour to hang out with us. You can find Lee on LeeChild.com and anywhere books are sold. Tom, dude, thank you for being my wingman. Holy smokes, you are such a pro. Anyone listening, I highly recommend Tom's book, I'm Hosting as Fast as I Can, Zen and the Art of Staying Sane in Hollywood. You can also find Tom on Twitter, where I love seeing his irreverent humor every day. And on next fall's season of Dancing with the Stars. What a gift he is. Speaking of gifts, with the holidays and New Year's coming up, if you've got a writer in your life who has everything but maybe a finished book, I've got a couple of options for you that range from the expensive to the free. On the high end, which is good if you need an end-of-year tax write-off, I have a few spots open in my January 14th through 18th and March 18th through 22nd writing retreats in gorgeous Carmel-by-the-Sea. In fact, that's how I know Tom Bergeron. He gave the retreat to a family member for Christmas last year. You can read what he says about playing Santa with me over on the retreat icon on beautifulwriterspodcast.com. For a much smaller price point, Danielle Laporte and I have our digital download, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan, which has resulted in a whole lot of book deals. That's also over on beautifulwriterspodcast.com. As is... For $25 a month, you can gift a writer in your life a subscription to the Beautiful Writers Group. You can also go to bookmama.com and sign up for my free Writer's Gift Pack, where you get a book proposal template that's really detailed and a few audios about all sorts of things related to writing and platform building. Anything to inspire you from idea to done to promotion. All right, guys. We are going into our fourth year of this podcast next year. I'm sort of amazed and blown away still that I keep getting to do this. It's one of the greatest gifts of my life. If it's working for you, I hope you'll take the time to leave us a five-star review or comment on iTunes, which is always so appreciated. I wish you and yours the happiest and merriest of holidays. Right on. Right on.